Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Teresa Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Emily, Scott, and Jasmine Smith. We are recording this show on Thursday, February 18th, to begin airing on Sunday, February 22nd. How's it going, ladies? I'm doing fine. Like, I can't complain just inside in mm-hmm. the snow. Yeah. Yeah, about the same. Uh, tired as usual, you know, <laughs> all that stuff. Thinking, you know, what am yeah. I doing with my life, you know, but I'm fine. Okay. So, ladies, I just realized I said, I just realized I said um, February 22nd is actually February 21st. So, this week, <laughs> we'll be talking about new drama from New York's Governor Cuomo. Um, I'm sure you heard everything that's happening in the news with him. Also, a breakdown of Joe Biden's town hall meeting. The winter storms affect on Texas and a little good news from New Zealand. So let's go ahead and kick off today's episode with our local news segment. Emily, take it away. All righty. So uh, my local story today is, you know, uh, casually I've titled it. So what's going on with Governor Cuomo? Um, the story comes primarily from a February 17th New York Times article by Jesse McKinley and Louis Ferre Sadorni. Um, and it's titled Cuomo faces revolt as legislatures move, legislators move to strip him of pandemic powers. Democratic lawmakers have begun to challenge Governor Cuomo's handling of virus-related nursing home deaths, and the governor also faces a federal inquiry. The article explains, quote, The Democratic leaders of the New York State Senate are moving to strip Governor Andrew M. Cuomo of unilateral emergency powers granted during the pandemic, setting up a remarkable rebuke for the governor from members of his own party. The Senate's measures, which could be voted on as soon as next week, underscore the deepening division between Mr. Cuomo and state lawmakers since the governor admitted to intentionally withholding critical data on virus-related deaths from the legislature. The moves come even as it emerged that the FBI and the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of New York had opened an inquiry into the Cuomo administration's handling of nursing homes during the pandemic, end quote. So it's been quite a downfall for Governor Cuomo since he became a national hero at the beginning of the pandemic, offering strong guidance and reassurance in a time when the federal government was just fucking useless. Um, Vogue even published an opinion article on March 22nd of last year titled, Why We Are Crushing on Andrew Cuomo Right Now. And Jezebel published a piece... Yeah, a piece on March 19th titled, Help, I Think I'm In Love With Andrew Cuomo? Three question marks. Um... As the New York Times article explains, however, quote, now much of that goodwill has evaporated and quote, lawmakers had been discussing limiting the governor's powers earlier this year, but those efforts were given new momentum as the controversy over nursing homes engulfed the Cuomo administration over the last month. The article also explains, quote, the last month has been one of near constant turmoil for the administration as the official official count of deaths of residents of nursing homes and long term care facilities has almost doubled from about eighty five hundred to more than fifteen thousand in the wake of a scathing report in late January from the state attorney general, Letitia James. Um, shout out from Teresa, I'm sure, and all of us um, suggesting a major undercount of the toll. Uh, Questions surrounding the governor's handling of nursing homes have been percolating since last spring, with particular interest on a March 25th guidance memo 
that compelled such facilities to admit or readmit people who were positive for the virus. Mr. Cuomo has said that memo followed federal guidance and was implemented for a fear that hospitals would be overwhelmed with patients. As the virus claimed the lives of thousands of nursing home residents in New York, however, the state's count of those residents' deaths remained incomplete. Nursing home residents who died in hospitals were not included in the accounting. New York was not the only state to omit hospital deaths, but the decision led to speculation that Mr. Cuomo was officially uh, was artificially suppressing the number to support both his policies and his growing national political profile, assertions he has rejected. Instead, for months, Mr. Cuomo in, uh, continually touted New York's performance, saying its nursing homes had done better than most other states, while still resisting requests for a complete death toll from lawmakers, the public, and the media. Finally, however, after a top aide, Melissa DeRosa, was recorded last week admitting the administration had purposely withheld the data in the face of an investigation by the Trump Justice Department that it feared would be politicized, the governor acknowledged on Monday that there had been a delay in telling people the full story. Quote, Mr. Cuomo, known for a combative political style, said the decision was a mistake, but stopped short of a, fu- of a full apology. Uh, The governor has been accused of lashing out at critics. Assemblyman Ron Kim, a Democrat from Queens, told CNN, quote, Governor Cuomo called me directly on Thursday to threaten my career if I did not cover up for Melissa DeRosa and what she said. He tried to pressure me to issue a statement, and it was a very traumatizing experience. Um, Cuomo also, quote, told me. Uh, told me we're told him or me we're in this business together and we don't cross certain lines and he said I hadn't seen his wrath and that he can destroy me um I can destroy you is just this is my own opinion is just like such a majestically scary and vague threat uh but of course the CNN article states that Cuomo's uh, quotes Cuomo's advisor denied that the governor threatened to destroy Kim So the New York Times article also explains that the state Senate is looking to pass a bill that would create a 10-person commission, quote, to evaluate any future pandemic-related directives by Mr. Cuomo, as well as suspension of laws. Uh, Critics of that move say that the ability to make quick decisions is vital during a pandemic, but the Senate Majority Leader, Andrea Stork-Cousins, a Democrat from Westchester County, said, quote, I think everyone understands where uh, we were back in March and where we are now. We certainly see the need for a quick response, but also want to move toward a system of increased oversight and review. The public deserves to have checks and balances. And that is my story of what's going on with Cuomo right now on the fall from grace, as the case may be, um, as far as the pandemic is related. And uh, yeah, he's uh, he's not doing too good. <laughs> wow. Well, as I said to one of my friends earlier today, I'm like, come on, this is the New York City governor. Let's review. Um, (laughs) People in New York politics always have some backstory, some, you know, back shady sort of situation with politics. Just in general, I feel like I kind of expect that. Um, And that's awful. But yeah, um, this story is really new. So underreporting deaths, I think is awful. I feel really bad for the people who whose families were affected during those early stages when we didn't know what to do um, with, with the, with the um, nursing homes. But it's interesting how the world thought he was doing such a great job, you know, just because he was actually making decisions and doing stuff and putting himself on television every day. But really what, what it took to get there is a whole nother story, I think. 
yeah it's it's definitely really interesting um yeah because because at the end of the day like he wasn't he sort of has gone back to I think what his reputation was pretty close to before he kind of rose to such popularity during the pandemic which was sort of like kind of like you know a little bit of a bully a little bit of a mean guy um you know someone who probably wasn't afraid you know would take down his enemies who got to where he is um that's that was at least my sort of um perspective you know um perspective of his reputation if you will yeah i agree yeah it's it's so damaging now especially we have such a problem in this country with misinformation and distrust and everything that to have someone in this position lying and covering things up it just makes everyone else who is trying to do the right thing it makes their job 10 times more difficult because now you're giving people even more reason to not trust the people that they should be able to trust to lead them and to be making ethical decisions which is it's just a shame it's like you have people that don't believe that this is real even now because they think people are boosting numbers artificially and then you have people you know on record now saying that you know the numbers were being suppressed I just hate to think about what this means because then you're expected to then turn around and trust these people when it comes to stuff like the vaccine or like telling you when it's safe to reopen this and that. And it's like, why should people put their confidence in you if you're obviously willing to like fuck with numbers to make yourself look better? Yeah. And that's like a whole thing too with the move, like, you know, the move to, remove his sort of broad executive power making decision right now is at least you know when it comes to his decision making with opening and closing indoor dining um it's i've been following that very closely as listeners may know and um a lot of experts are were have been like sort of baffled by why he's made certain choices and what like data he's using to make those choices and um, you know, like why, why does this one politician get to make all these huge public health decisions? Right. And it, it is a good question. Um, you know, what knowledge, like, you know, where, what knowledge base is he making those decisions off of, you know, what is the reason he is or is not making a certain decision? And he got, he got a lot of, I think, goodwill at the beginning of the pandemic because he was the only voice like on the national stage. It felt like saying lives are more important than money and reopening the economy, but it's like, yeah, he was, he was being very decisive yeah. you know, in a time when people needed that. And I think that's why people glorified him, but right. you know, just because you step up then doesn't wipe away, right. you know, your dark bully past. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like the things that you have done throughout your career that have exacerbated the problem or helped to create the conditions for the problem to be as shitty as it was. Like I think we've mentioned it on this show, and I don't have all the stats in front of me right now because I didn't prep them for this story, but he was behind a lot of things with like not taxing billionaires in the state closing hospitals that serve like underserved community like all of those things have consequences when you then have a crisis and there's not enough beds for people or there's not the money at the ready to pay people to stay home like all those chickens are then coming home to roost when all this shit is happening at the same time so it's really unfair for someone to basically put gasoline on a burning fire, (laughs) but then 
because like they're admitting there's a problem in the worst of times, they get made out to be like a hero when a lot of the stuff that's wrong can be tied to decisions that they made. Yeah, I agree. And sometimes we don't consider like the consequences too. you know, how they got there and the consequences of those decisions at the time, you know, I know it's you, you can't, we can't put ourselves in, in the seat of leadership in the, in the midst of what we are going through right now. You know, I can only imagine what a daily breakdown of information is and how do you even, you know, try to operate um, when everything is, you know, falling to shit. But the reality is, you know, that's leadership. You have to step up. You have to be decisive. You have to do as much as you can, but you can't take the back road. You know, you can't take the back door. Like it doesn't work that way. And it always comes out. It always comes out that that something else happened um, on your, you know, why we all thought you were doing so great. So, you know, I'm sure there'll be more to come, uh, more news to unravel with this story with Cuomo. I think it's interesting that he wrote that book on leadership in the midst of everything and released it. Um, I, a lot of people were saying, like, he took advantage of, of what was happening at the time for his book to be um so popular and so because he released it in the middle of the pandemic and it was very just so timely you know but um I don't know that always just struck me as something that was a bit odd like how do you map out something like that while you're in the middle of managing it just my thought yeah so moral of the story is all you people that were thirsty for Cuomo please get some help get some ice the man (laughs) the man the man also has like sexual harassment allegations against him like he does not have like a great track record just in general and I, I just I want more for everyone than to just have the bar be like in hell like just because someone is better than somebody who is completely incompetent does not make them a good person you know so exactly all right well thank you so much for sharing that story with us emily Um, i'm sure there's more to come we're gonna go ahead and jump into our first music break today the first track is a jazz record a classic from john coltrane this is called my favorite things we'll be right back Back to Objections to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we'll jump into our national news segment, and we are going to let Jasmine kick it off for us today. Okay, so 
This information comes from the New York Times. The writer is Tamir Khalifa, and the name of the article is Texans are still waiting for power to return with more snow on the way. So this is from uh, the 17th. Um, We're recording this on February the 18th of Thursday, so it's a story from Wednesday. Um, On the 17th, the state of Texas faced a new onslaught of sleet and freezing rain that the National Weather Service in Austin, San Antonio, said would be the, quote, worst of all the winter events over the past week. Snow fell around Dallas-Fort Worth, and some spots in Texas were expected to pick up more than a quarter inch of ice as the new storm moved through, making road travel extremely hazardous. On Wednesday afternoon, Governor Greg Abbott signed an executive order directing natural gas providers to halt all shipments of gas outside the state, ordering them to instead direct those sales to Texas power generators. During a news conference, Mr. Abbott said that there remained a lack of power within the electrical grid and that there were problems getting natural gas and renewable energy generators back online. He did not provide a clear timeline on when the power grid would be fully restored. He says every source of power Texas has has been compromised from coal and renewable energy to nuclear power. W. Nim Kidd Chief of the Texas Division of Emergency Management said several state agencies have been working together to meet the demands of nursing homes, hospitals, and dialysis centers, which have reported a variety of problems, including water main breaks and oxygen shortages. As another storm moves in, the state increased the number of warming centers to more than 300. Across the country, so not just in Texas, at least 31 people have died since the punishing winter weather began last week. Some died in crashes on icy roads, others succumbed to the cold, and others were killed when desperate attempts at warmth turned deadly. The Electrical Reliability Council of Texas, which manages the state's power grid, said it had restored electricity to about 1.6 million homes on Wednesday which meant nearly 2 million customers were still without power. I understand we live in a less cared for neighborhood, but we're human like everyone else, said Justin Chavez, who had been living with his wife and eight children in a home without power in San Antonio for days. The city should have been on top of this. What am I paying my taxes for? Austin Energy, which serves the state's capital, says its customers should be prepared to not have power through Wednesday and possibly longer. Austin's mayor, Steve Adler, had urged residents to use electricity as sparingly as possible in hopes of staving off further shutdowns using flashlights and candles if able. If you have power, please try to live almost like you don't, Mr. Adler said. If you have heat, run it low, run it lower. The pleas for conservation were received with grim irony by many on social media who pointed to the stark lines separating downtown Austin, still brightly lit, and a powerless East Austin, a traditionally Black and Hispanic part of the city. The strain revealed the vulnerabilities of a distressed system and set off a political fight as lawmakers called for hearings and an inquiry into the Electric Reliability Council. 
So um, I know that this has been in the news a lot, but one thing that I learned that I did not know was that Texas is on its own grid separate from other parts of the country. So uh, apparently this is to avoid federal regulation, but that was, you know, really shocking to me. Like there's a grid that's interconnected for the eastern part of the country, one for the western part, and then the majority of Texas is just, you know, on its own thing, like not really connected to those other bigger grids. Um, And another side story was there was a mayor of Colorado City, Texas named Tim Boyd, who was thankfully no longer the mayor. He resigned, but in the wake of all of this happening, he wrote a long rant on Facebook in which he said, um, only the strong will survive and the weak will perish. No one owes you or your family anything, nor is it the local government's responsibility to support you during trying times like this. Sink or swim, it's your choice. The city and county, along with power providers or any other service, owes you nothing in all caps. I'm sick and tired of people looking for a damn handout. So this is the mentality. There's him, there's Ted Cruz going to fucking Mexico when people are dying in his state. Um, these are the types of people that are in charge of things and that's how much they seem to care about what's going on with their citizens. So prayers up for the people of Texas. Um, I will put a link in on our social media for ways you can help. There's groups like Austin Mutual Aid, Mutual Aid Houston, Feed the People Dallas, Para Mi Gente, Austin Disaster Relief Network, Lucha Dallas, Trinity Mutual Aid, and Casa Marianella. Like those were all listed on the Rolling Stone um, for places that you can donate and look into to help support the people right now uh, during this time. That's wild. Um, thank you for covering that story. I um, actually had some a few notes to add to you. So my friend's cousin lives in Austin and he posted on Facebook like because um, he's from like the Northeast originally and he wanted to like help explain for friends and family like why this is so dire who people who don't understand like people like us who are like what's a few inches of snow right so he explains that um, because snow is rare they don't have they don't invest in any type of treatment or cleanup for snow or ice in the area um, there's not a single public salt truck or snow plow that in, exists in the state of 30 million no one has shovels or salt or snow tires or any way to deal with this um but it's like legit snow it's not even just a dusting and the pipes aren't fitted to deal with winter weather so they're either shut off or frozen for most of the people they don't have basements so they can't simply like heat them up or isolate them the pipes um the electrical grid as you mentioned um and then an apparent like you mentioned it was interesting to hear you say jasmine you mentioned that um there were also issues with the um renewable resources available 
Is that right? Like it wasn't just the coal industry because this the my friend's cousin was posting about how like so much of the ills going on is because of how reliant they are on fossil fuels. Um, but it, that was from, mm-hmm. that was a quote from the governor. Abbott said that every source of power Texas has has been compromised, and he was including coal and renewable energy and nuclear power. So that's mm-hmm. what he said. I don't. I can't elaborate further on like specifically mm-hmm. what he meant. Okay, so he, the the per, my friend's cousin who posted about it did actually clarify. He said that one nuclear power plant failed, and the only reason why the solar and wind are performing slightly under target is because the cheap ass government didn't buy the upgraded models that have warming features built in. Um, and then he ended by saying, "We're the number one energy producing state in the USA, and we can't even keep our own lights on." So that's my friend's cousin posting on Facebook about what's going on. He and he lives in Texas. I I grew up in a place where it it gets very snowy, but it's still extremely dangerous, you know, like even if you're used to it. Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. It's, it's very sad. I just actually saw a headline in the times, um, pop up like just a few minutes ago that power is returning to Texas for Texans, but millions still don't have clean water, forcing some to boil dirty snow on their stoves. Um, so yeah, so just a reminder for like, not a reminder, I think it's a good perspective, like new separate perspective for people from the Northeast and New York to remember that like, you know, this sort of weather might not be, I mean, it sounds like it would be even pretty like bad up here as it is, you know, what's happening in Texas, you know, but we, we have the history, like the, um, experience and to deal with it pretty easily but they absolutely don't not do not um and it's really turning into a pretty pretty crazy disaster for them yeah and it's not like it would be impossible for the people who are in charge of the state to borrow things from other you know like there have you know you can you have weather people that are telling you such and such type of a storm is coming so to be this caught to be this unprepared, like as far as the government is concerned, it's it's unacceptable. Yeah, well, they're you know, going- and it's not just up to individual people to I don't know, like Jerry rig something. Like, I I can't believe the mayor said that about like. Uh, I mean, I I I can and I can't. It's that whole. I I mean, I I guess the idea of someone like a an elected politician going in and saying we don't owe you anything is is crazy because it's like why would you why would you bring a politician in that doesn't want to do anything for you anyway and I guess he got removed or kicked out or left or whatever um but it's like I always that's that goddamn like libertarian like idea idea of like you know all like you to you know go good luck it's all on you to figure out what you want but it's like but these are all these people who like don't want to pay taxes but also like I'm sure the guy typing that is fully fully has the funding to be self-sufficient. He probably has his own generator because he has, you know, it's like all these people who like the fact he even has the capital, the ability to have that is because there was someone who invented that machine and was able to put it on a market in a society that's built and based on rules. And like, I just, ugh, I hate it. <laughs> what is your purpose as a government official if you don't right. believe government does anything? Right. It's what crazy. is your job then? Right. 
just get out (laughs) absolute piece of shit you know it's like people are on machines and stuff that literally keep them alive and then that suddenly gets shut down and they are no longer living and you would fix your face to say that it's just all these people should be afraid of their constituents and they need to be run up on because this is disgusting Mm -hmm. yeah I agree. I was just thinking about, you know, how awful it is that so many people um, are forced into this condition down in Texas. I did see a lot of videos and I have friends that are down there with small children that are really, you know, the communities are like leaning together with their neighbors because they don't have and they can't even get out. They can't get in. You know, lakes are frozen over. Resources are running low. And they and they've been talking about how there's like food shortages now because, they can't get the um, normal deliveries in. So it's not just the people going through the storm right now, but this is going to be last. It's going to last for a while. This problem is not going to go away when the snow melts. Like it's going to be really a setback for, you know, maybe a month for some people um, to really get themselves back on their feet. So I'm glad that you did, um, you, you know, you mentioned those ways that we can help because this is one of those things that when it happens, you can't really be prepared for. And, it's really sad. You know, people are going outside, picking up snow, trying to conserve water so they can cleanse themselves and, you know, cook anything that they have. You know, I'm always concerned about older people and children in situations like this that really can't help themselves. So this is really awful that, you know, and, and the comment about that politician saying these things, I agree with what you said completely, Jasmine. Everybody should fear their constituents. You know, we, we really need to make that change because I don't think that a lot of politicians don't understand their role. You're not just here to be fancy or represent something that you represent people that you'll never, ever serve, you know? And I think this, this just shows us that it needs to be redefined what their roles are and why they're even there because this is an emergency. This is an emergency and nobody's there to help them right now. It's really, it's really horrible. And I just, I also want to point out like these extreme weather patterns and these things happening are going to happen more and more frequently. We saw it with Hurricane Katrina. We're seeing it with these freakish storms in places that are normally very hot with these extreme flooding. And this is a preview of how the people in charge and the people that have the means, their MO is going to be to look out for their own interests and get the hell out of Dodge and basically leave everyone else to fend for themselves. So it's unfortunate that it's come to this, but people really need to kind of wake up and get connected with their neighbors, like get linked into some kind of mutual aid network really get tapped into community because it's not enough to just vote, for example. It's not enough to send letters to your representative because at the end of the day, if they decide to abandon you, then, you know, what do you have? You know, and I I just, I'm worried for the future because these things are going to happen more and more frequently, not less often. So ask yourself, wherever you are in the country, like, are you prepared for if something like this were to strike you? Like, who would you reach out to for assistance and start building those networks now? Because, you know, it's today, it's this state. It could be you tomorrow. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, prayers up. And please, if you can help, 
um, the people, please follow the links on our social media because this is an emergency. We don't know how long it's going to last and the weather's not getting any better. You know, there's more storms coming. This snow is all over the world. It's like not just here. It's like anybody within this um, this hemisphere or, you know, it's, it's snowing like this over um, in Europe and the Middle East as well. Right now, I've seen um, some pictures of snow in places that don't normally have it. So you're definitely right um, about global warming affecting us in this way. Absolutely. Um, all right. So we're going to transition for our next national news story. And Emily, why don't you break down that town hall meeting that President Joe gave us the other day? Oh, yeah. All right. So this is my sort of recap review sort of of that town hall. So um, the uh, CNN's Anderson Cooper hosted a town hall with our shiny new president Biden on Tuesday, the 16th in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, Biden stood on a stage with Cooper, maskless, but standing what looked like almost like 20 feet apart. Um, which I guess is cool, um, answering questions from some of the sparse and socially distanced audience members. Overall, um, I enjoyed it. Uh, It was a huge relief and improvement to have the person in charge speaking compassionately and articulately and knowledgeably about the vital issues. Of course, talk is cheap, but still, (laughs) it's something... um, when he was listening to the questions also like I, he had this really intensely like concentrating look on his face that actually reminded me a lot of my grandpa, which made me like a little, like, I don't know, emotional, but like in a good way, but that's just, you know, me. Um, what's the word? Just like, uh, getting my, uh, subjective opinion in there. Um, one thing I did not like, again, just as my opinion is that Biden made a bunch of religious references when he was greeting people, asking questions, saying, to this one guy that had like four kids at home that's like, Oh no purgatory for you. And then like the nurses that he was like, you know, have a place in heaven, stuff like that. Very Catholic, which I guess like is needed for a politician to appeal to a certain part of the population, but still it felt pretty cringy. But then he also referenced like Yiddish at one point. So that was fun for me. So whatever, overall he was, um, did his best to relate to the audience members in an engaging way, which is also, I guess, nice and political and what his job is at a certain point. Overall, he also skirted discussing Trump, which, uh, you know, good. We've talked enough about him. Um, so no for more specific points. Um, he said that there will be enough vaccines available for every single American by the end of July. Uh, but later on, someone asked him essentially, when will this be over? And his answer was like, Essentially, you know, he's like, oh, I should my experts are telling me not to predict things because you can't see into the future. But based on everything he knows, there's a high probability that with all the vaccines and the way we're moving towards herd immunity, that in a year from now, that there will be significantly fewer people that need to social distance or wear a mask. But we don't know. Um, I also think he said something about like hoping in September we'll be better off and getting schools reopened for September. But like, I was like, oh my God, is, is a year still on the table? And I was like, I was like, I started getting <laughs> freaking out. But, um, but I think he is also, he was very clear that he was trying to be cautious and not say, oh, only this much longer in case he's wrong. Um, he also mentioned he wants to get teachers moved higher up on the priority list for vaccination and that we need to make sure everyone who is a part of the school ecosystem needs to be protected in order to reopen safely. Um, so that's not just students and teachers, but bus drivers, maintenance workers, et cetera, um, which I think is very cool. He also said that the states are ma- the ones making decisions about who can get vaccinated and when. 
and that he can only make recommendations. Um, he also emphasized uh, that addressing racial disparities in healthcare and vaccine distributions, uh, distribution for Black and Hispanic people is a priority for him. He specifically referenced the dark history of Black people being used as essentially guinea pigs in medical research, um, which was, yeah, like cool to hear a politician in charge, like referencing those really important, you know, historical context for what's going on. Um, he went on to explain also things he wants to do to increase access, including things like providing for mobile units to get into hard, hard to reach neighborhoods for vaccinations. Um, Biden also is all about that $15 national minimum wage. He said it's important to do it gradually, but no one should work 40 hours a week and be in poverty. And like everyone, you know, pause for applause from the audience. Um, that was great to hear. And also he noted that apparently if we, if we had gradually increased the minimum wage when it was indexed at 720, which I think is where it still is stuck. Um, we, we would be at $20 an hour based on inflation. (laughs) Um, so, um, cool. Right. Um, so Biden also explicitly called domestic terror, our greatest threat specifically addressed white supremacy and extremism and called out how former military and police officers are having an effect on these groups. Um, He called these people dangerous and demented, which was very cool um, to hear again, the person in charge talking like that very explicitly, no holds barred. Um, He did also say though, that he is specifically against defunding the police and actually would want to increase funding to help create a better system. Um, and also said that there needs to be really much more intense psychological testing for recruits and better training. Um, so that is specifically, I think, where he is parting from um, some of the more liberal members of the Democratic Party. Um, but he also, you know, did say, like, no one should go to jail for a drug offense. Um, so he it's sort of like, I think, mixing like his old school sensibility with also, I think, you know, in his heart. Based on what at least, you know, politicians, you know, are politicians, but it sounds like, you know, he wants, he doesn't, you know, he talked about black teenagers shouldn't be afraid to walk in a hoodie, but also like cops shouldn't, you know, be uh, worried that they can't get home at night. So he's, he's walking sort of that middle ground there for sure. Um, He said that everyone should be able to go to community college for free and get hauled for applause. Um, He also talked about uh, having a system in place for debt forgiveness if you engage in a volunteer activity, which would be a cool option too. Um, He also talked about the PPP program for small businesses and what a disaster that has been. Um, He said there needs to be better oversight for those bills. Um, He said, you know, if you guys remember, 40% of those PPP loans ended up going to multi-million dollar corporations and not actually small businesses under the last administration. And that administration apparently said they didn't need an inspector general to look into the program and look at all that. Um, And he said, though, that there will be an investigation coming out showing that that was a lot of a lot of fraud going on. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. And then finally, my last highlight was that he wants to see an increase in refugees coming into the country, and he does support a pathway to citizenship for about 11 million undocumented people in this country. Uh, But he also noted, um, which I think was an uh, important thing to note, that the vast majority, or at least the majority of undocumented people in this country are people who had a visa to come here and then stayed after it expired. So we always hear a lot of rhetoric about how 
you know, it's people showing up at the border and all this stuff, but that's not actually the majority of um, undocumented people in this country. And it's important to, you know, not fall for all that rhetoric. Um, And that is my recap, guys. Um, I heard some pretty surprising things in a good way. Um, And also in neutral ways or, but um, overall it was quite a relief to have someone new in charge laying out their, you know, their plans for the future. Maybe I missed it, but did he say anything about sending relief checks to everyone, like the 2000 or... Right, yeah. So let me find that. I think he... It might have been his conversation about PPP. I was I was trying to list the things that stood out to me. Um, oh, he... Essentially, he didn't... The The question was, like, are you committed to passing... It was, it was less specific than that about how, indi- like, individuals would get supported. Um, the question was like, are you committed to passing a $1.9 trillion relief bill? Um, and essentially he's, he's just a really big supporter of spending a lot now, um, because it'll help us in the long run, right? This is not the time for the government to close its wallet. Um, you know, too many people are on the verge of being kicked out of their apartments and going hungry and losing their homes. And he, you know, basically he's, he's saying that his experts and you know everything he and as the economists are all saying like you should spend more money now so i think overall he's in favor of pushing those relief funding checks out um but he i don't think he got i don't remember him being specific about like how much for each person from what i can remember yeah yeah i didn't watch it myself i didn't know it was coming on until i think after it had already Mm -hmm. started and i was doing something else but i just I did see the woman who asked about student loan relief. Yeah. Yep. And so I also, I guess I sort of summarized that too, or like kind of, but she was like, you know, like, do you support or like, how are you going to get us like, you know, um, uh, what is it like debt relief for our $50,000 college? Yeah, loans? And he said, I'm not. <laughs> um, and it was really interesting response. Essentially he broke it down to saying like, you know, I'm not, I'm not just going to blanket, um, relieve student debt. Like some of those people are going to Ivy league schools and all this stuff. And he sort of, then he broke it down to, he supports free community college for everyone. And there should be programs to make it easier to, you know, like most volunteer programs was essentially his solutions to those things. And then something about also, um, certain like family sizes, being able to send, kids i think he said public schools also being not totally free but like yeah more affordable I, that didn't make any that didn't make sense to me because like people that are if you're at an ivy league and mm-hmm. you're in a lot of debt that means that you are not a rich person <laughs> like because yeah. you like, we can yeah. pay out of pocket or yeah i don't i don't um yeah, I don't really know exactly what what the point was he was trying to make, except that I guess what he what's you know apparently the government could pretty easily make community college affordable for everyone, but I, maybe relieving everyone's debt is not financially feasible. So that's like the best, yeah, you know, like um, actual accomplishable thing that is you know in his in his. I, I, you know, his site or whatever. Um, I don't, I don't really know though, a hundred percent. Yeah. Like where he got that reasoning from either. Um, 
yeah. Yeah, sounds suspect to me. <laughs> I mean, yeah. we always there's so many trillions that just yeah. get sent to whatever, and yeah. uh, I, I'm not really buying it. He did. He did say to start talking about. He he sort of skirted it a little. Like he didn't really go into it, but he did talk about how. Also, part of that issue is how unaffordable those schools are to, to begin with and why they're so unaffordable. Like, they don't need more skyboxes for their stadiums and stuff like that. And I think that's also, you know, a cool approach, too. It's like, why is it even why is it even $50,000 a year, right, or whatever it is to go to school, you know, for a good for like a, a top, you know, top tier education? Like, what are you actually paying for? Um, you know, all those bloated whatever endowments or whatever i don't really i don't really understand the finances but um yeah. I that was a cool point too it's also it's come up a lot on twitter but that student debt gets framed falsely as being like oh if we forgive all of this it's like what about the well-off people that might benefit which i think is ridiculous like if something is mm-hmm. going to benefit tons of lower class and working people who cares if it also helps someone who is rich but it's also yeah. a racial wealth gap issue because mm-hmm. people that are struggling and people that are marginalized tend to be the ones with the highest student loan burdens, even if mm-hmm. they don't graduate, even if they go to a public school. So yeah. having all these strings attached and being like, well, I'm just being both sidesy about it, it kind of maintains the system where a lot of people are just in desperation and it's not necessary. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah. I would like to see more pressure put on him for that personally and I I know I speak for a lot of people it's a huge issue yeah I agree I definitely think that that is one of the major ways to um, contribute to closing in the wealth gap for everyone and I I think that you know what college is now and what it's been it'll never be the same after the pandemic Um, as a person that's my career has mostly been in higher ed it the, just the whole energy around what college represents is completely different now. And I think that this this pause we've had because of the pandemic has made people really consider, like, what does it mean to be successful anymore? You know, I think that once things open back up, there will be some sort of like um, restoration of, of what college is and how it works. But I definitely think people will be making much wiser decisions about where they go and why they go there, because those things in this moment right now really don't matter. Right now, it's like, can you do the job? Are you capable of performing, you know, with all of the stress that we have going on? Can you work inside, outside? Can you focus your energy? We, we're living in a different world. So I do agree that um, that should definitely be a big part of some of the things that he's considering. I know I've, I've been kind of following along with um, Elizabeth Warren still pushing it and a couple of other people of Congress still pushing the issue. And he kind of just keeps skating around it as if, he doesn't really want to talk about it right now. All he wants to focus is on COVID. But COVID will, you know, it will have its moment. And then we have, you know, three or four more years of him to make real systemic changes. So it sounds good. You know, it's definitely positive, the things that he's saying. One of the things that stuck out to me was the mobile vaccine clinics, which I think is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. Especially like with the people in Texas, just to take it back, a lot of their um, vaccine storage is ruined because of all of this. And so the people that were oh, already, yeah. yeah, that was something I seen um, mm. as I was watching the news today, a lot of people that were signing up, trying to get this vaccine are now being delayed, pushed back. And some of the equipment and some of the supplies 
could be damaged or not make it or things of that nature. So the mobile vaccine clinic for me is a really big deal, you know, especially because in our communities, it's really hard to just get an appointment. You know, my parents are elderly. They're, they don't really operate the computer well and things like that. So they need assistance to try to get those things. So mm-hmm. for me, you know, definitely pushing that forward to get some relief in our communities is important, but there are so many things to do. So there are so many, you know, avenues to take. Um, so let's just hope that these plans, you know, that he has cooperation with, with the state governments as well, so that he can push this stuff through, um, and actually make some of these changes. And hopefully, you know, this, this, uh, conversation about student loan debt relief will come back again once we, you know, kind of get to the other side of the pandemic, it can come back to the forefront of conversation about, um, just closing a wealth gap and just really making real change so that people can have some relief from this crazy diabolical system we live in uh, of rich and poor. So definitely good recap, Emily. Thanks. <laughs> I like it when you get the feels cause you get so emotional. You're like, Oh, it's yeah. like my grandpa. <laughs> I Thanks for the feedback. Cause I, I like talking about it, but I don't know if people like hearing about it, but <laughs> Yeah, it always makes me feel warm inside. Okay, happy, cool. So that's good. But cool, cool, cool. Great recap. All right. So I think it's time for us to take our next music break. Um, this next track is by a cool group. I just discovered them this week. They are a young group up out of Atlanta. They're called Earth Gang. And this song is called House. We'll be right back. Keep on stepping Down the street from them we picnics We was nestling Chocolate babies, incubating Box of blessings Lead the weapon, talk to the mamas Arms to the best. If I was in it for the money Hell out of packed up for the evening I'd have lasted by the summer Lord, I'd have held out on my season I'd have missed what I had coming I'd have pissed what I could stomach I'd have pawned my daddy's Bible So ran daddy's people, but I ain't got no dollars today, but sure I can bless you though. Leap of faith from Z to A. Pray Ooh. for me. My efforts meet my hope. I just need change for the better. I just got drugs for the look. Hello, this is Jasmine. Just as a reminder, you can follow us on social media. We have a Facebook page and we also have an Instagram account. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram page is at objection to the rule. All one word, no spaces, and again, no punctuation. Thanks, and here's Teresa. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule. And for our final segment, we have a story that I got from the New York Times 
Um, the author is Natasha Smith, and the title is New Zealand to Roll Out Free Period Products to All Students. So New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern announced an initiative um, today that all New Zealand schools will have free access to sanitary products beginning in June. This initiative is aimed at stamping out period poverty, which is a term they used, in the country. The announcement follows a successful pilot program launched around the middle of last year, which provided free products to about 3,000 young people in 15 schools. She had this to say, providing free period products at school is only one way that the government can directly address poverty. It helps increase school attendance and makes a positive impact on children's well-being. We want to see improved engagement, learning, and behavior. Fewer young people missing school because of their period and reduced financial hardship amongst families um, of participating students. So speaking to reporters later in the day, she said that research has shown one in 12 young people are missing school because of this issue. Minister of Women, Jan Tanetti, said that the issues with periods at schools include embarrassment, stigma, missing classes for being caught out without products, costs, lack of knowledge, and discomfort. Students wanted information about periods. They did a uh, research um, where they went into the schools and they spoke to students about this issue, and they wanted to learn more about practical elements like managing their period, tracking it, knowing who to reach out for assistance, and how to get help. In November, Scotland became the first country to announce that it would make period products freely available to all who needed them. And other countries since then have taken smaller steps to address the issue. In January, Britain said it would repeal the so-called tampon tax, which classed sanitary products as non-essential luxury items. At least 30 American states still have similar taxes in place, but the White House announced plans this week for the Gender Policy Council to address issues related to women's lives, including national security, healthcare, and economics. So though New Zealand is one of the world's wealthiest nations, a study published last year by the charity Kids Can found that up to 20,000 New Zealand students were at risk of not being able to afford tampon products. The issue affects children from primary schools onward. So while providing, you know, free products is the first step, schools really need to focus on teaching young people how to manage their period and the different things to not have so much embarrassment about this natural process that happens. Um, So with the low wages, high cost of living, especially under the pressure under the pandemic, this is definitely a good step to try to help students. My only uh, question about this is with us being remote, you know, and um, I I believe in New Zealand, their their coronavirus handlings have been completely different than a lot of places. But it's nice to know that there are actual efforts being made to help educate young people about having the period and, and ending the embarrassment around not how knowing how to manage it. So I thought that was a bit of good news. Thank you for doing this good slash world news story. I, yes, have been um, a menstrual health educator um, for a nonprofit um, as a volunteer, but it was, um, so this is like very near and dear to my heart. Um, The move for, you know, menstrual equity is it's gathering steam um, around the world, which is awesome. Um, I, I, my, I was specifically, I was, my role was specifically educating about reusable products, which is like, you know, the next level, right? Like we need to make sure everyone has access to whatever they can, um, get because of course, like, you know, if women, you know, just like you talked about Teresa, access to menstrual health is just the first step towards, um, you know, equitable education experience for, um, you know, young menstruators, um, and then, you know, the reusable products takes in the the next, you know, like a 
another level of um, affordability, right? So you don't have mm-hmm. to worry every month about what where your products are. Um, it takes into account environmental stuff in terms of um, reducing trash. And it's also um, on a more like biological level, like tends to be um, better for bodies often because um, a lot of the, uh, you know, big companies who corporations that produce like tampons, like put a lot of chemicals in there that aren't necessarily good for you. But with all that aside, access to any products is like essential. So it's awesome to hear that these stories are happening around the world. Yeah. It's the education part for me. I think that, you know, educating young women about their periods and and to avoid the shame that comes along with it. Mm -hmm. You know, we we have a long history of women being ashamed for being women for all type of Mm -hmm. reasons. So I think that that part definitely helps, you know, just looking back over my own life. My mother was very open and she spoke to me a lot about it, but I can't remember a time, even in sex ed, where somebody actually had a real conversation about this process with me. And maybe not mm-hmm. feel like I didn't know what I was doing or, you know, so I think that's a definitely a cool move. And I really appreciate the fact that it's, you know, it's definitely going to help a lot of people in many different communities in that country. I think it's great. It's awesome. Awesome. Well, that's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you guys so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, on the Radio Free Brooklyn app, or on Spotify. Please keep listening for more independent Brooklyn media. We're going to play you out with our final track of the day. This is Fight for You by Her from the Motion Picture Soundtrack for Judas and the Black Messiah. See you next week. Bye. Goodbye. If you live in New York City and run for either fun or exercise, here's a way to learn something about the city while you're getting in your workout. City Running Tours is now offering neighborhood running tours designed with locals in mind. New York City takes pride in the diversity and character of its neighborhoods, and these unique running tours offer an opportunity to learn the history of a neighborhood and get personal recommendations from your guide. Choose from tours of 23 neighborhoods, including the East Village, the Upper West Side, Bushwick, Long Island City, and Roosevelt Island. For more information about the running tours and to see the list of neighborhoods and full tour schedule, check out their website at www.cityrunningtours.com slash New York City and check out a live tour every Saturday at 10 a.m. on Instagram.com forward slash city running tours.